Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, and we're co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew. And as always, if you like the show, hit that subscribe button, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a shout. Say hello, comment, or what have you on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. I am not going to waste any more time. Our guest today is Reed Galen. Reed is a co-founder of The Lincoln Project and an independent political strategist and public affairs professional with more than 20 years experience. Reed's been involved in politics, government, and business at the highest levels, having managed several high-profile ballot measure campaigns here in my home state of California, as well as Texas and Colorado, directing all aspects of message development and voter contact. Before moving to the private sector, Reed served as deputy campaign manager for John McCain's presidential campaign and deputy campaign manager for Arnold Schwarzenegger's successful reelection campaign in 2006. And before that, before his move to California, he worked on both the 2000 and 2004 campaigns of President George W. Bush. Between campaigns, Reed spent a year at the White House and served the Bush administration at both the U.S. Department of Treasury and the Department of Homeland Security. You've been a busy man for the last 20 something years. Reed, I know. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but we don't know each other well enough for me to say, you don't look a day older than 84. No, right. Well, I don't feel a day older than 84 either. So it's no joke. Uh, in, in all seriousness, this is an absolute honor. I've been tracking with oh. your work. I've listened to hundreds of hours of your content and read so many of your articles at this point. I'm just thrilled that you're doing this. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. You know, uh, you know, thank you for having me and for the kind introduction. Every time I hear that thing, it's, you know, that, it's it, another year's gone by where that thing is now for, you know, we're now talking two decades ago, which is hard to believe. But yeah. I used to have hair on my head and not on my face. And now we've we've reversed that. Well, you're you're afflicted with the same thing, at least on the face. So <laughs> thank you for having me. This is wonderful. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to start at the beginning. Politics for you is like going into the family business, from what I understand. Could you tell us a bit about your dad, Rich Galen, and the influence that he had on you? Sure. Uh, so my dad was in politics, in Republican politics for gosh darn near half a century. Let me give a shout out to him. My dad uh, had some health issues, just got out of the hospital after two months last week and is on the mend. So happy for that. And, and my mother's a saint uh, looking after him right now. So uh, but, you know, he he worked on Capitol Hill most of my childhood when it was a much different, not only system, but in a much different political environment. And the Republican Party was a much different party then. You know, it was the party of Reagan in the White House. Republicans were often in the White House. But remember, Democrats ran Congress uh, for the most part. Uh, They'd run, you know, until 1994, when Gingrich took over, Democrats had run the U.S. House of Representatives for the better part of, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, whatever it was. And so, you know, 
when other kids went to summer camp, I went to the office, uh, which was either Capitol Hill, um, you know, a congressional office there, the National Republican Congressional Committee or the Republican National Committee, wherever he happened to be posted at the time. Um, so I grew up with this stuff being second nature, which is I'm not necessarily sure a good thing for a kid, um, <laughs> but certainly prepared me for uh, for my future career. But, you know, I think he was being being, you know, being the kid of an operative is different than being the kid of an activist, um, because and this is good and bad. You see it for uh, what it is, which is, you know, a, a numbers game. Right. Ultimately, uh, if politics and policy are equitable, uh, one leads to the other and the other follows one. You know, it, it, it's just a flywheel. And, you know, he worked on both sides of it, both on the campaign side of it and the policy side of it. But, you know, the enduring lesson is if you want to make policy, you got to win the election. And mm -hmm. so I've always been a campaign guy far more than a policy person. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I was looking at your where you went to school. It looks like you started high school in Virginia, but then mm -hmm. you moved down to Texas. Is that right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Went to high school, finished high school in Dallas and then went to college at the University of Texas at Austin. UT Austin. But here's what I want to ask you about high school. Are you a mind open to direction, a heart open to others, a soul open to searching? <laughs> the mission statement for students at the Episcopal, Episcopal School of Dallas goes on. I am as unique and precious as my desires, my needs and my ideas. I am raw potential just waiting to be discovered, nourished and shared. I am igniting lives of purpose. So was that high school experience fulfilling of its mission with you or were you more of the prodigal? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that 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 saying existed when I was there. But um, when I was there, we still had uh, lunch in the commons and we did chapel in the gymnasium. So, you know, they, they have had a fabulous expansion in the 20 some years since I got out of school. It was having gone to public school for most of my life. Uh, I went to private school and we got to Dallas and it kicked my rear. Mm. You know, I was able to coast through public school. Uh, without trying very hard and end up on the dean's list. Uh, this is where people actually expected me to think critically, do the work that was expected of me. And the work that was expected of me was, you know, was hard. But, you know, I mean, it was a great experience. Uh, there were, you know, a very small class. Most of us ended up actually going to UT, which drove the, the you know, the private school faculty to distraction. Um, <laughs> you know, they wanted a heck of a lot less state school kids and a heck of a lot more private school kids. But it was great. You know, I got to be co-editor of the newspaper, um, you know, I thought I wanted to be a journalist when I got to school, but that was going to take like an extra two or three years to get out of school, given how short on space the UT journalism program was at the time. So um, I had all these political science credits piled up. So that helped me. Yeah. So you, when you first went to uh, UT Austin, you mm. studied journalism or did you go into poli sci or, or one of those subjects right away? Well, I, again, I thought I wanted to be a journalist, but once the I had a I had a meeting with my my advisor, who was a very old and crotchety journalism <laughs> professor um, back then. I, I I don't even know if he's still around anymore. He did not encourage me to stay within the journalism program, <laughs> and I uh, and I was not driven enough by it. I mean, I saw school more as a, a social institution than probably one of higher learning. Uh, and so when I realized I'd taken an AP history, AP civics, all this other stuff, and I realized I had all these credits I could place out of, I said, well, poli sci looks like a pretty good way to go. And so, you know, before you know it, I'm in Texas history and the history of Eastern Europe and all, you know, all that stuff. And so it was great. It was great. It was a good experience. And, 
Austin, Texas is an incredible. I love Austin. It's a great place. I mean, it was, you know, when I got to school in 1994, it was a, it was a relatively small town of 250,000 people, really, that was balanced between government and the school. Um, You know, now it's a metro area, probably close to a million people. It's it's been an incredible expansion. Um, You know, the tech community is there, is huge there. I still have a lot of friends uh, that that work there and live there. So uh, I enjoy going back any time, but from May to say October, I try and avoid the face of the sun as much as I can. Oh, there you go. So the cloakroom, is that your, your place? Yeah. Me and a bunch of my friends bought the cloakroom, uh, which is a legendary speakeasy. Yeah. 13th in Colorado next to the Texas state Capitol, um, which I hope as we're speaking as the Texas legislative session is still going for another few weeks or another couple of months, uh, is busy, uh, should be busy right about now. I don't, I don't imagine the legislators there work much after five 30. So. Yeah. Uh, going back to UT Austin, just for a second, I had a unique experience. I got uh, what would have been my sophomore year of college. I got licensed to be a stockbroker series seven, series 63. And it mm-hmm. sort of ruined me to go back and take any sort of finance classes or investing mm-hmm. classes because I sat in the classes thinking these guys have never been on the floor. These guys don't actually know what moves the price of a stock. Were you ruined similarly because you really understood what made what what made Washington tick or were you able to look at it more from an objective uh, standpoint? Um, when it came to when it came to classes about American politics, about Congress, about the presidency, um, yeah, I was. Again, growing up as the as the kid of a campaign guy, political scientists I thought were great, right? It's all well and good to take reams and reams of data from previous campaigns, do regression analysis and say this happened and that happened. And I'm sure, that, look, there is a reason that those things are important. But what was really left out of it was the practical application of all this stuff. If you had graduated with a political science degree, you know, I imagine, I mean, I only had 12,000 classmates, right? So I assume <laughs> that that a lot of the folks who graduated with history degrees, English degrees, poli sci degrees were just probably headed to, you know, to get their MBA or get their law degree anyway. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly, you know, very few people go into politics as a profession, right? Yeah. Maybe some people want to be in policy, they go to the state legislature, they go to a state agency, they go to a federal agency, whatever the case might be. But most people, you know, maybe get on a few campaigns when they're young and give it up because it's a hard life. It's peripatetic. It doesn't pay well. Uh, you lose more than you win if you do it long enough. And uh, as you as I can tell you, and I know having talked to my dad before he got sick, you can watch the descent of a party you gave a good chunk of your life to with just absolute horror and and frustration, a little bit of shame. I feel like all the people we all worked for, my friends, the people I worked for were always w- would not translate well into now anyway. And a lot of those folks who remain are now leaving, you know, the moderate Republicans, especially in the U.S. Senate, you see they're they're headed for the exits. But yeah, I thought that, you know, if somebody was trying to tell me what it was like to be on a presidential campaign, and I know that they'd been standing behind that lectern for 30 years, like it made it hard for me to believe that they really knew what they were talking about. Oh, man. So you worked for the George W. Bush's reelection campaign for governor. Were you still in school when you did that? Yeah, I was an intern. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I worked for the fundraising people. Um, you know, it was, the, it was the job they had available, and I was willing, you know, I was... I don't know what, 21, um, going to school, bartending at night, interning during the day. And so, yeah, you know, I, I do whatever I needed to, 
and it was the greatest thing I ever did. Right. I mean, it took me to places I could never have imagined, gave me opportunities I would not believe were possible. But, you know, being an intern in the late 90s on a on a big political operation like that is a far cry from what it probably is like today. The interns were the rented mules of the political world and were treated <laughs> thusly. And it was just one of the things you put up with. Like nobody liked it, but that's what you did. Um, and so that was 97, early 98. And then, yeah, um, I went to work on another campaign for the balance of the 98 cycle. And then, you know, kicked around. And then, you know, 1999 came up and, um, you know, then Governor Bush decided to run for president. I jumped on probably that January of 2000, um, although I, you know, never really left the fold. Um, once you're a Bushy, you're sort of always a Bushy. They don't let you go. And so, yeah, the, the rest is history. You know, that's amazing. So it sounds like you developed relationships, even as an intern, that you were able then to parlay because you happened to be on the right guy's campaign as governor, who then became, you know, started running for president and then won the nomination, won the presidency. Yeah, look, time, I mean, I mean, 90% of why I am where I am today is because of good luck, it, luck and timing, right, and, and location. If I had been at Syracuse University, if I'd been at Purdue, if I'd been at Nebraska, I wouldn't be where I am today. I don't know where I'd be, um, but I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And I don't know what I would have done. Um, and that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that alternative timeline. But being in that place at that time with that group of people, many of whom I'm still friends with to this day, you know, was a singularly unique opportunity. So it sounds like you have you developed relationships back then that you still define your your circles to this day. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, politics, especially uh, presidential campaigns and, and the part of it that I worked in, which was called advance, which was basically setting up the logistics uh, for the for then the governor or whoever, you know, whatever principle it was. Um, you know, you go out four or five, six days ahead of time. He's going to be in Ottumwa, Iowa. You find a place to do the event. You set up the stage You make sure the crowd shows up. You know, it's 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 a lot of fun, um, especially when you're, you know, a very young person living off the $40 a day per diem that they gave you. Maybe it was 25. I don't remember. It wasn't very much. Oh, you can make that thing stretch, baby. <laughs> well, you could. And, you know, thankfully, because I was usually the, the young person on the team, um, you know, there were older, mostly guys who always looked after us for dinner and that kind of stuff. So that was very kind of them. Uh, but I got to see the country. And then I, when he was, I mean, I've been to 48 states. I'm missing Kentucky and North Dakota, I think. I don't, you know, I don't okay. know how I miss Kentucky, but, but then, you know, when he got elected, I got to see the world and seeing the world from the front of a presidential motorcade is a, is a pretty heady thing. And so, you know, you're 25 years old and whatever airport it is, whether or not it's, you know, Kansas city or St. Petersburg or wherever it is, and the radio is in your ear. It starts squawking and you hear the door, you know, cause you, and then you can see air force one landing and, you know, the plane lands and the motorcade rolls up and people are rushing everywhere. And, you know, you get in the front, you, the, the, what I was called what was a lead advance man or a lead advance person. And you ride in what's called the lead car. That's the first car in the motorcade. And so it's a police officer in the front, um, another police officer in the, in the passenger seat, uh, two Secret Service agents and me wedged in the middle. Right. And there's radios going off and everything else. And you look back and there's, you know, so there's the, the limousines and suburbans and everything. Whoop, 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 whoop. And you guys just like, why does anybody let me do this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty incredible thing. That's awesome. And so, you know, um, it was, a you know, and then, you know, I worked at the White House from 2002 to 2003. And 
you know, it, if, if, if they had space on the airplane, which they always did because they were very, they kept a very small manifest, they'd fly us home. I mean, think about that. You're 25 years old. You just, you know, helped uh, arrange a, a visit for the leader of the free world. And then by the way, you can get a ride home on Air Force One. If you want. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty cool deal when you're 25. That's a right? cool deal. I'm so glad that you, that you uh, described what that was one of my big questions. What is, what is an advanced man? What does that, what does that guy do? But uh, you not only did that on the campaigns, you did it for, uh, for the administration as well. It sounds like. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is that if there's a, if there's a political hierarchy, right. Of the president themselves, the advanced person is as close to the bottom as you can be, if not the bottom, right. In consideration. The irony is, is that advanced people get to see the president or the vice president or the first lady or now the second gentleman more than anybody else, because in regular times, you know, the president spent far more time, you know, outside the White House generally than he did at the White House. And even if he did, he's in the Oval Office. She's in the, you know, she's in the vice president's office and everybody who works at the White House, even in the West Wing, like they're in their office all day. Maybe the president comes by. You know, but it's not like he doesn't. I mean, I can't speak for other presidents, but President Bush didn't just sort of stroll around on a regular basis, seeing how people were doing. He was working. So I got to see him every week and talk to him every week. And that was a pretty cool thing. That is a cool thing. Now, you ended up, like I said, working on campaigns as well as in administrations. But mm. it seems from listening to you, uh, it seems like you got a little bit of red ass in you. Do you, you know what I mean by that? I don't, but I'd love, uh, you're probably right, but I'd love to know what you mean by it. Well, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think. If you're a baseball fan, um, mm. who would be a red ass? Uh, Lenny Dykstra was the ultimate oh. red ass. I mean, even before the steroids, Lenny Dykstra I was, was a say, red well, ass. Let's, let's hope I don't end up like him. But, no, uh, no, no. But uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of good examples. But uh, you're, the sense of competition, like you thrive on that sense of competition. It seems to be in your blood. So campaigns seem to suit you more, or do you actually prefer a break? Not a break, because I'm sure that working in an administration is all day, every day, but just that the drive and the competition of campaigns seem to suit you. Well, yeah, I mean, I would say that's, it's, it is a very, it's, if, if you are lucky enough to work on good ones and successful ones, and you're able to move up the ranks, it's a very difficult life to leave because, you know, every two years, you know, there's something you can work on that you, you know, if you, if you believe in it, it really matters. You know, every four years, it's the opportunity to potentially change the world. Uh, if you're going to work on a presidential campaign, but a gubernatorial race or a senatorial race, or even a congressional race can all have that excitement, that sense of adrenaline. But, you know, it's, it's not an easy life. The hard part was that, you know, you you, you have on years and off years, right? Even numbered years are busy, there's more money, there's more opportunity. And odd years are, okay, what am I going to fill in my time with? And that's where you do PR work, public affairs work. It's all fine, right? I mean, I can write a press release in my sleep, um, but it doesn't get you, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't drive that adrenal gland like a campaign does. Um, and you're right. I mean, and this last one, you know, th there was never more adrenaline or fun or, you know, stakes couldn't be higher than anything like that. So oh, yeah, um, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, I would be poorly suited to a corporate office, poorly suited probably to like a congressional office, right? Where I was just, even in a senior role, it would, it would probably just be too, I don't know. It'd, it'd be too, formulaic is not the right word. It just, it, it wouldn't be what I needed it to be. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I saw a couple of different jobs in there that had to do with scheduling and advance. But uh, one one that was policy oriented, I think the one with Homeland mm. Security. Uh, but yeah, I worked at FEMA before before <laughs> uh, Katrina. So okay, all right. Yeah, um, but I was I, I was in New Orleans twenty four hours after Katrina made landfall because a lot of my friends still worked at FEMA then. So yeah, I mean I. I, I FEMA is a fabulous organization, fabulous agency, uh, dead with really incredibly dedicated people working there. It is literally, I mean, it is the emergency management agency when there are things that state and local governments can't handle. And this happens more than you'd think it does. Uh, FEMA steps in and it basically turns on a pipeline of money and deploys a lot of experts who do this for a living, right? They go from emergency to disaster to emergency to disaster, just trying to figure out how to mitigate the the effort you know the the consequences you know build up a you know a response operation that is necessary and try and give people some semblance of a life back now it's not the easiest job in the world and certainly they're not perfect at it but it is certainly a a place filled with more than good intentions and i think you know people who dedicate their lives to trying to you know end other people's suffering when it happens yeah since he mentioned katrina i have to give a shout out to one of my best friends in the world and his wife a lifelong friend, a guy named Mark Lego has been living down there. He went to Tulane Law School in the early mm. to mid-90s and his wife, Stacy. So shout out to you all. And they they lived through that and they they did some good work in the wake of Katrina and in the oil spill. And- I'll tell you, I mean, we flew down to St. Bernard's Parish one day and the locals had taken over an Exxon refinery building because uh, it was the only building that was basically habitable. And Exxon was kicking and screaming. <laughs> they wanted their building back. Wow. And the locals were like, you, you, we'll give it back when we're ready to give it back. <laughs> um, but it was like some, it was like something out of a, a war zone or a third world country. Yeah. I mean, they were doing everything. You know, there was, wa- you know, bottled water, canned food, boxed food was being, you know, helicoptered in. You know, they were having to get to City Hall, you know, on flat bottom boats. Um, it was It was a place that was totally wrecked. And all these folks who could have just tried to get out of there stayed, right? Everybody who had a public safety role, whether or not it was a police officer, a fire, you know, firefighter, EMT, doctors, they all stayed. Yeah. Um, you know, they had they had pickup trucks where they they sort of looped tarps around uh, the back of the bed, and they just spray painted red crosses on because those were the ambulances. There weren't wow. any ambulances, um, and it was just a, it was a devastating thing. And to see what the city's become. And since then is is a is a is a testament to the will of, of the people that live yeah. there. And I, I it's it's such a great town. And if you haven't had a chance to go spend. No, you no, know, no. Look, I don't drink anymore. But let me tell you something. I could spend a lot of time eating in New Orleans. So, yeah, no, it's just a matter of <laughs> if I haven't been this year or even this month, you know, I can't right. I can only stay away from New Orleans so long. You know, it, it's there's something that just gets in your in your soul that you just got to go back. It, I, it, I think that's right. It's a little bit like Austin. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but they're kissing cousins, I think, Austin and New Orleans. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's a wonderful town with wonderful people. And yeah, everyone should spend more time there. Now, one of your jobs I definitely do not envy because it seems like wedding planner times a gazillion was <laughs> the inaugural committee. What's that like? Sure. Head up uh, the inaugural committee. Well, so I was the guy who was in charge of I had the worst job. Uh, than heading all of it. I had, I was the guy who was in charge of the budgets for the different events. And, you know, and again, this, we, we think about these things in the context of a normal year, obviously we've had anything, but, but, you know, during normal times, 
the, the inaugural committee is the one that that creates the political celebration for the new president, new vice president, new first lady, new second lady, because the military and Congress are in charge of the official proceedings, right? Because it's a handover of power from one executive, you know, from one article one branch person, one chief executive to another. And it's also a handover of the commander in chief role. So let me just say this. I mean, less than two months ago, we witnessed our first non-peaceful transfer of power in this country's 244 year history. Um, and you know what what is and this is the first time I'm really thinking about it was that you know as we were going through all the preparation for the different balls and the parade, you know the different do- the different events you do for donors, all of those things, the celebrations you know at the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument or what, you know the South Lawn of the White House, whatever it was, you took it we just took it for granted, right? This was just what was going to happen. Uh, Bill Clinton was leaving office, or excuse me. Well, no, I guess George W. Bush was going to be a second term president. So there was no transition to speak of. Right. Right. They just kept operating. And we just took it for granted. Right. It just like this was just what happened. Um, And there was no more violence on January 20th, 2005. than you know, the the army firing off, uh, you know, 21 empty howitzer shells to celebrate, you know, the 21 gun salute of the chief executive and the commander in chief. So it was uh, it was one of those things where, given the sensitivity of some folks, you had to make sure that. If you were going to tell somebody no, make sure that it was somebody who couldn't really get you in trouble, yeah. <laughs> right? And if yeah. it was somebody who could, make, make somebody else tell them no. Now, given your role specifically with regard to budgets, I don't know if you can comment on this, but I, hmm. would, I would love to hear your input on, there were millions and millions of dollars that went missing when Kushner oversaw the, inaug- sure. the inaugural uh, four years ago. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we would I would say this is that I mean, there's there are a couple of people who worked for the Bush family, specifically in campaign finance. You know, they were comptrollers. They worked in our Treasury division of various, you know, whether or not it was George H.W. Bush, whether or not it was George W. Bush, whether it was Jeb Bush, who, you know, they none of that silliness was getting by them. And I would like I mean, it's like everything. The inaugural committee had a whole bunch of money disappear. Um, in 2020, you know, the Trump campaign ran out of money at the end. Why? Because, you know, Kushner was in charge of two LLCs that sucked $700 million oh out of the God. place. Like, who the hell knows where it went? To 666 is where it went in, uh, in New right. York. <laughs> right. Or paying off debt service or something. So, yeah, yeah it's just that's also that's also, uh, you know, the lack of oversight also speaks to one, they didn't want any. And two. There just aren't a lot of people. There weren't a lot of people in establishment Republican politics, which was still a thing in D.C., who were going to work for that. You know, it wasn't until he'd been in office that people were like, oh, I guess it's OK to work for him now because he's a Republican and I'm a Republican. And D.C.'s full, you know, they're apparatchiks, right? They're survivors. They it, Ultimately, they got to find a job somewhere. No, I, I've talked to a few people who did work for the campaign, uh, not the campaign, for the uh, administration with that, you know, good intentions. You know, we talked to Sarah Isger from the dispatch a, a few weeks ago. And and I mean, I get it. I, I get that desire to do good work. If you're a good person, hey, listen, you, you got to populate those those chairs with with somebody might as well be good people who know, maybe have an idea of what what the hell they're doing. But um, those folks didn't last <laughs> but but here but that's that you just you just made the real point though, which is you can go into those roles with that belief. The question is, when confronted with something that you would otherwise never be able to tolerate, do you tolerate it or do you leave? Yeah. So, 
I have friends who started in the administration with very similar, a very similar ethos. Some, you know, these are important jobs. Uh, maybe I don't like this person. Maybe I don't agree with that, how this person talks or acts, but this place is better with me there keeping an eye on things than me not being there. And that, as I said, that's fine until there comes a time when you have to decide whether or not you can put up with the unbearable, whether or not you're going to bear the things that you know to be wrong because, you know, well, it's bad now, but it could be worse if I leave. Now you've crossed over to being complicit as opposed to I can't be a part. I tried to come here and do my best. They're asking me to violate my ethos, my ethics. I can't stay anymore. I have to go. Um, I have very dear friends who, you know, took path A and because they convinced themselves that the place was better with them than without them. That might be. But like the administration wasn't getting better. It wasn't going to do the things that were the correct things. It wasn't going to do right by the people or whoever, you know, wherever it is they were working. And so collaboration is a slippery slope. You start with the best of intentions and it often ends up badly. Oh man. Yeah. Especially that level of corruption, that level of, it's not even amorality. It's like anti-morality that is so pervasive. Yeah. Right. Immorality doesn't, isn't a big enough word. I mean, only the Germans have a word for it probably. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure Jonah Goldberg knows what, what that word is, but uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so you, not too long after that, you, were deputy campaign manager for Governor Schwarzenegger for mm. his reelection campaign. Was that the first time that you worked with Steve Schmidt? It was the second time, but we didn't know each other the first time. We were both on the 2004 Bush reelect. We spoke exactly one time when he asked if he could get tickets for his parents to a rally the president was doing in New Hampshire. <laughs> I, I said, sure. I had no idea who he was. He was just, just like big, bald-headed dude who walked in <laughs> wearing cowboy boots. And I'm like, yeah, sure, dude, whatever you need. Yeah, so we didn't we didn't really know each other, um, but we got to know each other quickly. Um, yeah, we've been friends and colleagues. Uh, you know, it's 15 years this month uh, that we've been working closely together. So, yeah, that was our first experience. Do you think there'll ever be a time when Schwarzenegger-type Republicans take back the party? Like those who can appeal to independents and, and centrist mm. Democrats, I mean, those who can win a state like California, or are those Republicans now Democrats? I think those Republicans don't run for office anymore. Yeah. Probably. That part of the party, the establishment part of the party is what we call it, is in full retreat. You know, it has been for some time. You know, establishments have a hard time uh, with insurgencies, you know, especially successful insurgencies, which is what Trump was. And they have a very hard time because they're not they're not built for nor prepared to fight the fights you need to to push the insurgency back into the woods. And so I think that's why you see guys like Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, uh, Rob Portman of Ohio, Roy Blunt of Missouri, you know, retiring because one, they have they probably are. They're very smart guys have been doing this a long time. They know they're not going to win a primary uh, against whoever the Trump Republican is. And two, they don't want to be part of it anymore. I can't really blame them. The, wor the country is worse for their loss when they finally do leave office in you know a couple of years. That's really too bad. That's disheartening to think that there isn't really a home for principled. You know, I'm wondering how long guys like Ben Sass and Lyndon Meyer can you know, uh, or even or even some of the new Congress people like uh, Meyer 
Uh, some of the folks, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know who they are or that Nancy Mace down in South Carolina. I'm wondering if, if even somebody like that can survive a primary or if these folks, uh, folks like the next Jeff Flake, uh, are, are, are they just not going to serve uh, in, in those types of offices or, or even try to run for those types of offices because there's no place for them? I mean, I think I think people will try. Um, my fear is that the caliber of people who will try will not be what it should be, if that makes sense. Um, and I would also say this is that, you know, we're now in year six, almost of, of sort of Trump being the head of the party, five and a half. Um, so what you're seeing is that a lot of people at the at the state and local level um, came up with the sort of Trumpist tradition. So the number of people who were even establishment in nature is just less and less. There's just not as many of them. Uh, so you're going to have to have people from outside politics, perhaps, you know, may, maybe more self-funders, you know, who are trying to come in and, you know, maybe they can't they can't buy grassroots support, but they can buy lots of airtime and lots of commercials and maybe try and get over the hump. And one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to have a bunch more, you know, oligarchs in public office because they're the only people who can afford to win against these folks. Uh, you're going to have a lot more Democrats, you know, because you take a state like Ohio, a state like Pennsylvania, you know, if you get a truly like hyper Trump person who says, <clears throat> stop the steal, don't, you know, Trump was robbed. We should have stormed the storming the Capitol was a good thing. There's going to be a lot of voters in those states who, aren't going to, you know, they're just not going to go that way. But that's an, that's just an assumption. I could be totally wrong. Wow. And I think this is where we always have to remember that, you know, this stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. We are a, we are a dual party system. We are a duopoly, right? And so, you know, it's all well and good to have crazy Republican as the nominee in, in Pennsylvania. But if the Democrats don't put up someone who can speak to those independents, who can speak to Republicans who don't have any place else to go, then they might revert to the Republican because, well, I don't like him, but I really don't like them either. And that's that's, I think, probably in a nutshell where our politics is. So it's interesting that you're saying that because I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. But mm-hmm. you were part of the Serve America movement, which is uh, Sam for short, which is really <laughs> fascinating as a chief strategist. So you 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 had to have believed at least enough to work with uh, serve America movement to think that there might be an opportunity for a third party. Yeah. Oh, listen, I mean, I, I spent two years of my life and about $2 million working on that. And we got one, we got one new party in New York state, the system. I mean, I work with, I, I've talked to a lot of folks, a lot of very patriotic Democrats who say we need a healthy center right party in this country. And when they say it, I believe them. I believe it too. Yeah. The issue is, is when I say, well, would you call governor X or secretary of state Y or Senator Z and tell them like, we need to reduce the barrier to entry in these States for new parties to form. They're all like, eh, it's not really what I'm signing up for. I mean, let's be clear. Republicans don't want new competition and Democrats don't either. That's how the system is set up. Every state has its own way you do these things. In a place like Louisiana, it's filling out a piece of paper. In a state like Vermont, you have to do a state party convention in each of, I think, the state's 14 counties and have three people. And then you get into the process of, okay, who's going to be the state party chair and the treasurer and the vice chair and the secretary? And how are you going to 
build these things out by county. And how are you going to field candidates? And now we have state campaign finance laws to contend with. And before you know it, like your eyes have glazed over and like two years have gone by. So do I believe that it's necessary? I believe that competition is necessary um, to both parties because right now they do what they do because they don't feel threatened and there's no innovation because they don't have to innovate. And so I think that, yeah, whether or not it's in the, in the form of a state party or a new party, new parties in certain places, a place like California, right, is ripe for a center right or centrist party. Same with New York state, maybe even maybe even in Illinois or a Washington state, because Republicans are basically DOA there. Maybe Illinois is not a good example, but New York, right, the Republicans are getting wackier and wackier. California is basically the template for like Trumpism, right? The California Republican Party went nuts before anybody else did. Yeah. So it, do I believe it would be a good thing? I do. Given our first pass, the post system and the other things that we have in place, it's very difficult uh, without something like a top two primary or top four primary and ranked choice voting, where you're just giving voters more options yeah. to not only elect different people, but also mechanisms by which to elect different people. You know, independent is hard because nobody knows what I means. Okay. Right. People have even in today's world, people have a sense of what R means and what D means. But I every survey you see, would you vote for an independent or, you know, do you want more independent candidates? Yes. Seventy percent. Would you vote for one? Thirty eh, percent say yes. OK. Right. Uh, so it's it's a hard slog for new entrants. It's also logistics. I mean, I know that uh, Mike Garcia here in California, 25 and Christy Smith, who ended up running against them in the general. Mm hmm. Very close race. I think they both were at about somewhere between one point five and three million dollars in the primary. You know, they both mm-hmm. ultimately. I think Mike raised just under ten million for the for the general, but three million dollars for a primary. So that just speaks to the the fact that, man, uh, you know, if you're not backed by a major party, it, it would be hard even to get to that point, don't you think? Yeah, and I mean, think about in California twenty five, which is the Los Angeles media market. Maybe you've got some Bakersfield in there too. The level of the the inefficiency and the money you raise is enormous because if you want to put something on KTLA or KCBS, you know, you're speaking to 20 million people who are never going to vote for you. Yeah. And so it's just it's, you know, even on radio. Right. It's, you know, you're you're in you're in northern L.A. County and you're talking to somebody in South Orange, South Orange County. Right. Like it just they don't have any idea who you are or why they're listening to your ad. So. Right. It's a, it's a very tough thing. It requires a lot of money. But I would say also that state parties and their adjuncts, so in California, it could be public employee unions. They, they just provide a lot of the manpower for this stuff, as you said, that, that just an independent would have a hard time coming up with. Hmm. Now, uh, so I do want to talk a little bit more about that, but I, I want to make sure that I ask you about McCain-Palin 08. Hmm. I'm sure you get questions all the time having to do with Sarah Palin. So, Yeah, the good news is for me is I wasn't there. I had already been thrown out with, oh. with the rubbish by the time that happened. Yeah. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I, I, okay. So you and I can talk about it like as, as interested observers, you know, sure. I'll tell you my experience when I heard her introduced, I, I was going to ask you if you were in the room when, because I, I was really rooting for the Joe Lieberman that, I mean, I know he was an independent at that point, but even though he was an independent, that would have been a historic choice. So then Sarah Palin gets introduced and on paper, she was introduced as this young, smart, up and coming governor who would buck her own party. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm listening. And then literally 
probably five seconds, but you know, at the very most 10 seconds after she opened her mouth for the first time, I thought, huh, this, she, this is not who was, <laughs> this, this is not the person they were selling to me, <laughs> you know? Well, let, let me, let me speak to, to the Lieberman piece first. I mean, the, the thing is, I think that would have been great. And I think that's probably if McCain would have had his druthers, that's the way he would have gone. But here's where party rules matter, which is if Joe Lieberman had been put forth at a Republican National Convention as a VP nominee, he would not have gotten the necessary votes uh, to be the nominee. And I believe, and I don't know if they've changed this, but after a second vote without a majority, then it goes to the floor and God knows who John McCain would have ended up with as a running mate. Could have been Sarah Palin. (laughs) Could have been Sarah Palin. Hell, maybe they would have ended up in the same place. Like if you think backwards about like where we are with the Republican Party, Sarah Palin was like the the first knock on the door, oh, man. right for all this, and then you know the Tea Party came around in two two thousand ten as as a result of Palin showing that there was a populist stream of of consciousness in the Republican Party, but then also with Obamacare and everything else, so they were really banging on the door, and in that metaphor. Donald Trump's like, you know, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, right? Like, here's Donnie, right? Like, you know, banging an axe through the door and like screaming at, you know, a, yeah. a terrified woman with a with a butcher knife on the other side. And so, you know, I, I think that she was, you know, it's it's an easy thing to say. I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of other complexities and nuance I'm missing, but she did certainly legitimize that part of the party, you know, and, and I think helped get us to where we are now. You know, I'm just thinking out loud at right now, and this will definitely get me into trouble when, usually when I do that. But it was it was Sarah Palin when I really started to notice that certain virtues that we could all agree upon, like being smart, reading well, being articulate. I thought those were virtues. And Sarah Palin was the first national figure that I really took notice of that was almost making that out to be a bad thing. It wasn't just being well-read and intelligent, it, it, there were other virtues similar to that. And I thought, you know, again, the, the you brought up the Tea Party. When I first heard about the Tea Party, I thought, okay, theoretically, this could be a good thing, but it became much more about the sizzle than the stake of the initial idea. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Well, here's, here's what I think it really did. Yes, because what it ultimately really allowed was for the annihilism to exist, an anti-government belief system to overtake the party. For a long time, whether you agreed with it or not, there was a Republican concept of governance. Well, I was thinking like if I forget when when exactly William F. Buckley passed away, but I can't imagine that he would have been a, a Sarah Palin fan or or a lot of the way that that um, conservative was being marketed or, or conservatives were talking just, mm. I mean, that dude was, was smart. Like it, whether you, to your point, whether you agreed with him or not, like you had to really consider some deep nuanced ideas. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you go back to Reagan, right? The nine most dangerous words are I'm from the government and I'm here to help, <laughs> but you know, he was president for eight years. Um, he worked with Democrats in Congress Right. I mean, I think that that was, you know, a very Reagan-esque sort of, you know, half smile thing that spoke to a broader indication of how most Americans, regardless of political stripe, probably feel about their government. And and he also said that right before he introduced, uh, I think he he was he was sort of breaking the ice. What what was the bill that he was introducing that was basically the government here to help? 
mm-hmm. okay. ahead of that speech? I'm not entirely sure. So you know what? And look, that would make even more sense if it was taken out of context. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, is that has become a mantra for a lack of any desire, remote desire yeah. to actually operate the government. I mean, you take, you know, saying Marjorie Taylor Greene is like saying Voldemort to me. Oh, um, but what does she do every day? She goes up to Congress. She stands on the House floor and like five times a day, she calls for a roll call vote to adjourn. She wastes half an hour every time she does it. Right. And it's because she's just throwing sand in the gears because she doesn't believe in it, because she doesn't believe in the democratic process and she doesn't believe in the legislative process because she thinks it's all bogus. Um, she's an authoritarian. She's she's called herself a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't understand why. Why bother? Like, because you want a better Twitter feed or something like I can't I can't quite get my. Head. Well, look, I mean, to me, it's 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 the ascension and retention of power the self-aggrandizement and the aspiration to personal uh, wealth. And we have names for groups like that. They're called gangs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we have one that's now a political party. Yeah. So why, why'd you get kicked off of the campaign? <laughs> well, you know, these things happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's put it this way. You know, it was a, for lack of a better word, but it was a palace coup. There were two factions. My group lost. Okay. We left. Well, I, I technically quit. Okay. I should say that. But if I had stayed at my desk 15 more minutes, I would have been fired, especially because I was a Bushy, right? Like I came from Bush world and they, those McCain folks did not like us. Mm, okay. um, they still blamed us for South Carolina in 2000. They think that he should have been the, you know, McCain should have been the nominee. Um, a lot of bad blood that probably persists to this day. Yeah. Bigger picture. Well, you probably stung at the time, but looking at the shit show that once once Palin was picked, uh, I, I, it probably saved you a whole bunch of grief. And frankly, in a post-Katrina, post-financial collapse world, I just don't know if any ticket, Republican ticket, could have won that year. Well, I mean, you know, the, I mean, before the before the meltdown, I think it was a pretty even fight. Yeah. But yeah, post-meltdown, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was inevitable at that point. So now going back to Serve America movement again for a second, mm-hmm. I would imagine for a lifelong Republican, seeing what was happening to the party in 15 and 16, we talked a little bit about this already, um, must have been excruciating for you to watch those years. When, you know, yeah, Trump going down on the escalator, on the golden escalator. and Sure. You know, it was a joke. Yeah. We all thought it was a joke. Yeah. And it was about five months later, maybe not even three months later, like, wait a second. I don't know. And then by December, we were doing some polling for a client that showed what we already thought we believed, which was it was going to be Trump and Hillary. I mean, Hillary didn't have much of a field, so that's not really surprising. I mean, nobody expected Bernie, obviously. But I had convinced myself that there was just no possible way he could win. And, you know, that kind of confirmation bias, as you know, is deadly, which means every decision you make, every piece of data you take in only goes to reinforce what you already think. And there were friends of mine who were doing survey work, who were doing focus groups, who said, you know, where I live, you know, my what a guy that I was friends with for a long time from central, you know, deep red central Pennsylvania said, he's going to win Pennsylvania. Every one of my relatives freaking loves the guy and they hate Hillary. And what I forgot and what we learned in 2020 was that Hillary was Hillary Clinton's mythological. Yeah. Right. There were people who, by the time she was running for president a second time in 2016, had disliked her for 25 years. Right. And it didn't matter 
how odious Donald Trump was, they were never going to vote for her. Now, that didn't necessarily mean they were going to vote for him, but they weren't going to vote for her. And then you add in all the other problems with the campaign. And ultimately, as a candidate, regardless of where you're going to, you know, what you're running for, whether or not it's dog catcher or president, you actually have to know why you want to run and be, you know, that take that office. And it can't be, well, because like it's my turn. Like, so it's not a good answer. Right. Uh, and people can see through it. The shame of that, you know, the primary in 16 is there were at least a dozen of them, if not 14 or 15 of them that you could make a really strong case for, you know, uh, that, sure. that had substance, had real arguments, had, had, had a real record. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump, anybody who grew up in Jersey knew this, anybody who was paying any attention at all since the mid eighties, I grew up in central Jersey knows mm-hmm. that he, he wasn't, he wasn't a successful businessman. He was a successful thief. He was a marketing genius. That's what, that's what his genius is. Yeah. I mean, his, his other genius is that he has no soul. So, you know, he can well, look, look you in the eye. That one helps the other. Yeah. Yeah. You're, I mean, everything you sell is vaporware and you don't care whether or not people buy it. Right. Oh man. It's even worse than that. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's solid gold. No, it's not. It's gold plated asbestos is what it is, you know, mm, just right. But I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on motherfucking Trump, but I would imagine a lot of the same considerations that brought you to Sam ultimately led to your participation in the Lincoln Project. How did those conversations begin? Well, I mean, with with Sam, and you know, again, it, it's it, they still, you know, they're still going. Uh, yeah. A guy named David Jolly is their chairman now, former member, Republican member of Congress from Florida. I was never very good Republican to begin with, right? Like, I wasn't. I'm not a conservative, right? Okay. Like, I never like when when I had to sit in like conservative coalition meetings, I'd be like, why, why am I here? This is not, these are not my people. And so first of all, nobody's really a centrist. Like nobody's really that. Like if you ask people, somebody did a survey, some group did a survey, like how, how people saw themselves. And it was like 2% of the country sees themselves as centrists, right? Like it's not, it's not a thing. Now there's plenty of moderates, right? They, they make up the plurality, if not the majority. But the system, again, is, is not set up to, to accommodate those folks. It's set up to see what we're seeing. Um, and everything has now become a reduction to those things. And so with the Lincoln Project, what we saw was that no, the, like the, polit- the Republican establishment, based largely out of Washington, D.C., was both unwilling and incapable of really taking Trump on. They didn't know how to do it. Um, when you live inside the beltway, everything is done in consideration of like, am I going to get invited to this? Am I, is this going to harm another thing I got working on? Am I going to be sitting in a restaurant and I see that person and they're going to be like, what are you doing? You know, so like proximity matters. I remember sitting in a, in a you know, lovely person's salon in, you know, Northwest DC and, you know, everybody's very earnest and they're all there for the right reasons, right? They all have the, the right, they're all there for the right reasons. But what what I realized was, one, is that I'd already left the Republican Party, right? Most of these folks hadn't. And what I think we saw was that you couldn't be anti-Trump and pro-Republican. It just wasn't a mix that you could really get away with because he owned the party. He owns the party. Still does. Um, And so from our perspective, it was going to be if you were going to go after one of him, you had to go after all of them. And not because we were Democrats, but because we saw that they're all part and parcel of the same issues. And we would say things like, you know, I wrote this piece a couple of years ago, and we were just having a conversation about it yesterday. Like Democrats and even establishment Republicans, like they play chess, right? 
Donald Trump eats the pieces. Like it's a different <laughs> thing. It's just not, it's not the same thing. And I said, you're not going to beat him being conventional. You're not going to beat him on policy. You're not going to beat him on like his failures in office. I mean, ultimately, I think COVID probably did beat him. Um, but it was all the other things that I think we contributed to and others that made it impossible for him to run the campaign he wanted to run. You know, I grew up, I spent a lot of time in Texas, as you mentioned, and there's a company down there called Red Adair, and they put out oil well fires. Like, that's what they do. And the way you put out an oil fire is you blow it up. You deprive it of oxygen. And that's what Donald Trump is. He's a political oil fire. Mm -hmm. um, and if you give him oxygen to burn, he will. Uh, what we found was, you know, and we love our historical metaphors, whether or not it was, you know, General Zhap of the North Vietnamese Army or whatever it was, is that, you know, you had to grab him by the belt and just never let him go. Uh, so we just stayed in his face. We made a conscious decision to try and get inside his head from almost day one. Now, it took four months, right? But eventually we got him. And once we got him, we never let him go. And because he is who he is, he couldn't let go because we were in his head. And yeah. so what we wanted to do as, as, the, as Joe Biden and his campaign were still reorienting from the primary and getting ready for the general was be his prime antagonist. And so all day, every day, all we did was stay in his face and get that. And so we knew, you know, there would be days where, you know, the, the second or third thing on the, the campaign communications checklist was, you know, whatever one was. And then two, two or three was what are the Lincoln Project people doing? What are we going to do about it? <laughs> um, and we also understood like that there were some things, whether or not it was China, Russia, veterans, COVID, you know, all these things that like we knew what his angle of attack on, on Biden was going to be when they finally got around to it. We had to get there first yeah, and make his make his arguments illegitimate. You know, that's what we did. But again, it was the willingness was the most important part to take on the leader of the free world and understand like what you were willing to do to do that. And we understood that it wasn't. You know, there are people who got upset with us when we went, we made ads about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Well, you know what happened when we did those things? Jared and Ivanka went bananas. Yeah. And instead of working on their campaign, they spent three days trying to figure out what to do about us. <laughs> we helped Brad Parscale get fired. Yeah. And so everything was about taking what was already an internal, an untenable level of internal chaos and making that like spin so fast that the centrifuges exploded. Yeah. And that's what we were trying to do the whole time, right up until the week before when we put up a billboard in Times Square yep. of Jared and Ivanka with body bags surrounding them. And Jared saying whatever terrible thing he said about New Yorkers dying and, and Ivanka doing the Goya thing with, you know, however many dead people. And they sued us or they tried to sue us. They threatened to sue us. And so what are they talking about six days before the campaign? Are they talking about Trump's second term or what he's going to do to get rid of COVID? No, they're suing us. It's exactly where we wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, there is this um, technique in entertainment where you you figure out the route that the chairman of the studio was taking from his home to the studio, as well as any routes that the director of the movie or the producer of the movie was taking to the studio. And you make sure that you put billboards for the movie on their route. Right. So you were doing that, but you also understood your opponent, you know, in any sort of combat you, you understand that your opponent has tendencies, you know, so sure. if, if you're shooting for the right leg, you know that the, your opponent always, you know, does a certain thing. You knew exactly what, what your opponent was going to do in this instance. Well, I mean, look here, the guy was the most, he was the most transparent president we've ever had. Everything that was in his head <laughs> was, was public. 
right? Either he yeah. tweeted it, he said it to Sean Hannity, somebody, he said it to somebody in the Oval Office who immediately texted it to Maggie Haberman or somebody yeah. else. Like yeah. there was no secrets with this guy. And yeah. you always knew what his, what his weaknesses were. And here's the other thing. Here was a really simple thing. Like we advertised on Fox News in Washington, D.C., you know, during prime time. Why? Because, because he was watching. Because he was watching. Like he watches Fox religiously. He watches it. He's got his he's got his phone in one hand. He's got his Super TiVo on the other. And he's got a Big Mac and a, and a thing of fries in front of him. And he watches it religiously. And we knew that he was going to be there. And eventually, you know, somebody said it's not trolling if you get him on the hook. And I could make an argument, although he'd never admit it, that I bet there were times he was watching just to see what we would do. Right. <laughs> And what we'd say. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was you knew exactly who he was, what his weak spots were and where he was going to be. Right. Yeah. It was the perfect it was the perfect combination of things. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I have a bunch of questions for you about the Lincoln Project and, and uh, some some of our listeners um, sent in some questions, uh, some of whom. Fire away. First, I want to ask you about Fred Wellman and the decision to, sure. to make him the executive director of the Lincoln Project. Mm-hmm. Sure. So Fred what ran our veterans organization last year. Um, he graduated from West Point, um, was a combat helicopter pilot in both the first and second Gulf War, was a public affairs officer for David Petraeus and General Dempsey over in Iraq. You know, has a distinguished career. Uh, I think he retired as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, had done some public affairs work, had worked you know, with corporations, had worked with political organizations about how to really drive veterans um, issues. I believe last summer before or last spring before he came on board with us on the veterans thing, I think he was one of the first people in New York, you know, setting up field hospitals. And so Fred, I asked, I said, Fred, I need someone who's a grown up, who's seen the best and worst of what life has to offer. And he's got a lot of stuff that I will not share with him. But let's just say this. The guy is a freaking survivor and a hero. And I need a, I need someone who for whom, you know, the rough and tumble world of politics is, is going to be child's play compared to, you know, Iraq, you know, four times in 10 years or whatever. And so, you know, he agreed to come on board and thank God for it. Yeah. Our mutual pal, Peter A.D., for our listeners who don't know him, Peter is <laughs> a heck, heck of a dude. Um, but mm-hmm. Peter headed up marketing at major film studios throughout a long, successful career and has been involved in political campaigns of late. Peter wanted me to ask, what are the Lincoln Project's next steps? Uh, for example, what are some of the hires and changes you've made in addition to Fred? Yeah, I mean, I would say that we've actually streamlined the organization more than anything. I mean, first and foremost, it's an off year, right? It's not an election year. Most super PACs would just go into hibernation, right? You wouldn't even hear from them again until probably, you know, late third or fourth quarter as they started to raise money again for the for the election cycle. And so, you know, we we have a lot of the same folks that were with us in 2020. Um, it's a smaller crew. It's a more focused crew. And and again, I'm glad that every one of them is with us. Um, most of them. In fact, I think all of them were with us through every last battle, you know, starting probably mid year last year when we really started ramping up operations. And um, yeah, so, I mean, they're each unique in their own way and have, I mean, look, the fact that they are with us, uh, I think is a huge testament to their dedication to the cause that is much bigger than just, you know, a super PAC that puts ads in. Yeah. Now I want to preface the next set of questions by saying that it should be noted that as soon as the extent of the allegations against John Weaver were known, 
the Lincoln Project quickly and decisively denounced his conduct across multiple platforms. And you're, you're now having an independent law firm do a review of those allegations, as well as working, um, according to a statement I read, uh, quote, working with outside counsel to strengthen its corporate governance, finance, operational structure, human resources, and leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, I get the impression that since the revelations about uh, th- those revelations became public, there's been this like vulturous frenzy to dig up more dirt on any and all who are still associated with the group. Sure. This might sound like a naive question, but is there something unsavory or unethical about major league political consultants earning major league fees for their work? Well, let me say this. I mean, we live in America. You know, everybody has their opportunity to make a living. Some people get to do it the way they want. Other people do it the way they have to. I would say this is that every dollar that we spent last year went to the best possible outcome we could achieve, the most efficient outcome we could achieve. And I would say that, you know, what you're seeing a lot of is the result of folks who have left, who left in circumstances that, you know, they were unhappy about. And, you know, there's only so much I can do or say about any of that other than I hope, you know, that they have, you know, they feel good about what the things they've done and said and, you know, hope the best for them in the future. You know, and then I would say that we should never forget what it is we did and who blames us for it. Um, we were part of a terrific grand coalition that helped elect Joe Biden. But Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, Don Jr., Lara, Ivanka, all of them, they hate us. Yeah. And they blame us. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I started putting in this context. We didn't just help them lose an election or help Joe Biden win an election. We took from them the most powerful position humanity has ever created. And we took from them the most powerful position humanity has ever created. We cost them hundreds of millions, if not billions, if not tens of billions of dollars in unlimited and unimaginable power on earth. And they're really upset about it. (laughs) And so we should not assume that they're going to stop. I I got this mail piece here. You know, this is the second one, bad mouthing us, calling us all sorts of names. And and that's going to happen more. Uh, And the question isn't why. We know why. The question is, what do you do about it? And from our perspective, the easiest thing to do through this whole period would be to say, you know what? We had a great year. We did an amazing thing with an amazing group of people for the most part. Um, And we're going to fold up the tent. It's not worth the trouble. Everything would be easier than what we're doing. Yeah. And we do it because every morning we get up and we care about it. Um, and so, you know, like, you know, you, you said, and you mentioned the statement, we're taking the, the steps we need to, to make sure that like Rick and Stu and Steve and I, like, like we're not HR managers. We're not corporate management types. Like that's what Fred's, that was, that's Fred's job. Yeah. Like Fred knows that stuff better than we're ever going to. Our job is figuring out who should we go pick a fight with? That's going to make her, it's going to engender a reaction. that's going to have a real effect on the American political system. And from our perspective right now, not enough people like the, what happened on January 6th is, is being forgotten and it's being forgotten. I would say actively um, by both parties in Washington, DC, both parties want to move on because Republicans know it's bad for them and Democrats don't want to have to contend with it. And so that's what keeps us going every day. 
Well, you know, you anticipated a lot of the other questions I was going to ask on that. <laughs> it's, so, it's almost as if I've done this before. Almost, almost. <laughs> no, I appreciate your candor on that. Of course. And I, I also recognize that uh, because of the internal investigation, there's only so much that you can say. So I respect that. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely rooting for you. No, look, man. I mean, this is, I mean, this is a, this is a hard time, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no fun being in the barrel. It's no fun watching blind quotes fly all over major news sources. You know, it's no fun having to explain to your family why it is you're getting these mail pieces. Uh, none of this stuff is how you choose to spend your time or the things you choose to deal with. We made some mistakes and we're fixing those mistakes. You know, I, I, what I've always found fascinating, or not always, but what I've found fascinating about these last few weeks is the number of people who worked for us who were apparently so fundamentally unhappy, but didn't say anything at the time. But what's more heartening and frankly humbling are the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have reached out to say like, you guys made mistakes, get your act together, get back to work. We're here for you. You can't leave. And that's the kind of, that, that's who we, that's how, who we listen to. It's not the Acela corridor. It's not the political media. It's not talking heads. We were never going to listen to them anyway. Right. Yeah. Like we did things in spite of them, not because of them. Right. And that's what we'll keep doing. So this, uh, these next couple of questions comes from Michael Fer Ferentino, lead economist for trade policy at the world bank. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. I, is, I, 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 let me just, let me just preface this by saying I may not literally be able to answer his question <laughs> because I am not that smart. Ferentino is much more approachable than he sounds like by his title. So um, where does the Lincoln Project situate itself in the modern history of the Republican Party prior to 2016? Other than Lincoln, what historical Republicans do you admire and why? Where do we put ourselves? I'm not sure where we put ourselves uh, outside of it, Yeah, um, for sure, at this point. Um, but look, I think, you know, Ulysses Grant doesn't get nearly enough credit. Um, you know, he's He's obviously, you know, one of the greatest strategic generals that America's ever produced, but he doesn't get nearly enough credit for the things he did uh, while he was president. Um, specifically, you know, he nearly eradicated the KKK, you know, wanted to do a lot more, I think, post-Civil War than he was able to. The scandals of his time, and I think sort of an overarching, long-standing mythology that, you know, he was a drunk and incapable of doing anything, I think are, are unfair to his legacy. Teddy Roosevelt is a no-brainer. Uh, and Dwight Eisenhower. I saw this thing on Twitter the other day. Every white guy in America, once they turn 40, has to choose a hobby. It's either World War II or smoked meats. Um, <laughs> I've gone with World War II, as okay. have many of my friends, but I also have many smoked fish, smoked meat aficionados, oh, So, um, which keeps me uh, eating while I'm reading my books. But I think that Eisenhower was the perfect example of a guy who took office and understood the role of his job was to be a servant uh, and a leader, not to be someone who was going to impose his own viewpoint on everything all the time. Now, with Eisenhower, so you, you, you read plenty of biographies. This was, not a, this was not a man. He was a man of his time, right? He was born in the 19th century. Uh, he, was not, he was not totally comfortable uh, with the civil rights movement, uh, but when the Supreme Court or it might have been a federal judge, I'm not entirely sure, said that Arkansas schools were going to be desegregated and the governor down there didn't want to do it. Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne to carry out the order, right? It was a lawful order. If the Supreme Court, which you know ultimately 
uh, is the arbiter of American law, said that it was illegal to segregate schools in Arkansas, in Little Rock, then that was the rule and that was the law that Eisenhower was going to follow, regardless of whether or not he was comfortable with the outcome. And so, you know, he also, if you think about it, maybe this, you know, you go back and you read his his story of traveling across the, the American West, you know, in the, you know, post-World War I days when there was no major, there was no highway system in this country, right? And we were, we were still very much an agrarian 19th century country. And he, inter, you know, he, he created and built the internet's interstate highway system, right? Which totally revolutionized uh, American life and the American economy. This was not a man who was afraid of government. This was not a man who did not see governing as his first order of business. Um, if you look back, you know, I think the top marginal tax rate during his administration was like 90% or something oh, 90, insane. Yeah, yeah. It was very, very high, whatever yeah. it was. The point is it's twice, if not three times higher than it is now. And he didn't see anything wrong with that. And so I think that, you know, he's one of those who, you know, dedicated his entire life to American service from the moment that he entered West Point till the moment he died in Gettysburg. And, and I think that, you know, he is, we need a heck of a lot more like him. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I think, Reagan, you know, Reagan gets plenty of credit for, you know, facing down uh, the Soviet Union, right? He knew what he had to do and he did it. You know, the one thing we know about Russia today is it doesn't have an economy that can sustain stuff, right? Even it's just impossible. Um, But we, you know, it's people are afraid of what they're going to do. Reagan understood that the only way to put bullies back in their place is to not be bullied and to to drive them to do things they don't want to do. Uh, and then I think George H.W. Bush, right? Another uh, another man of service, right? From the moment that he joined the Navy uh, as a young bomber or torpedo pilot, all the way through being CIA director, onward to China, vice president, president. You know, he he did it with a plum. He did it with grace. He and Mrs. Bush were, I think, paragons of American service. And I and I hope we find some more of them as we go forward. Yeah, j- just kind of being a geek of presidential history. Would you rate George H.W. Bush as the best one-term president? Certainly among the best, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, as much as I remember any of the rest of them, sure. I mean, I think that, yes, I think that's probably true. But I think that like a, a guy like Jimmy Carter, where you could say plenty of bad things about his presidency, his has been an absolute saint yeah. in you know, his post-presidential life. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's, he's probably done more for more people uh, in the, you know, what is it, 40 years since he left office than anyone could have ever asked for or imagined. So, yeah. All right, a couple more questions and then uh, on to a little bit of business because I've, I've already stolen enough of your time today. So this one comes, actually, uh, a friend of mine who is still a Trump supporter, but not a, not a crazy Trump supporter. And mm-hmm. I, I do have those friends. I try to, I try to keep an open mind. Um, and this fellow is sure. a winsome guy and I, I learned from him. He asked, what do you say to critics who claim that there is little that is conservative in your argument and that in 2020, the Lincoln Project was mainly a group of hired guns shilling for Democrats? Well, we're in a two party system. And when one party has decided that its leader and its main ethos is going to be authoritarian and fundamentally anti-democratic. It's our job to make sure that those people don't keep power and don't attain power. And are we Democrats? We're not. We're not a progressive organization. We are a pro-democracy organization. And unfortunately for us and for many Americans, there's only one pro-democracy party at the moment. Right. And it's not the Republican Party. So 
That's you know, scary. they can be upset about us shilling for Democrats all they want. I mean, every every Republican in office, in, in national office and federal office, maybe with the exception of Mitt Romney, is complicit in Donald Trump. They all decided that they could, you know, use him as a vehicle or ignore him and he'd go away, pretending like he was a useful idiot or something. And he schooled them all. Yeah, you're right. It, it's It's too bad that it is a binary choice. The way I look at it, though, is that right now one party is big enough to have folks I mentioned earlier speak at their convention like Kasich and Meg Whitman, Christine, Todd Whitman, Colin Powell and and AOC, you know, and then another party literally had no no platform except whatever Trump says. So I don't know uh, if you have to choose between one or the other. I'd rather side with Kasich and Colin Powell and Meg Whitman. So this came from a. A friend of of Peter's, uh, also someone mm-hmm. you know who who wants to remain anonymous, asked, "What can be done or is being done by the Lincoln Project to defeat massive voter suppression efforts and all the bills in the Republican-run state legislatures?" So, I mean, right now Georgia is top of mind for a lot of folks. Um, you know, I think their session ends next month. Obviously, they're very upset that Joe Biden won the presidency and two Democrats. Um, you know, won the U.S. Senate seats. Trump is responsible for all of those things uh, on, you know, on one level. But the ability and willingness of voters, not only uh, voters of color, but also, you know, white suburban voters. You know, so I think about a, maybe 300,000 Latino voters in Georgia. Uh, it was a massive, uh, you know, success. It was a, it was a broad based coalition. And I thought it did incredible work. And now they're upset. You know, now Republicans in the legislature are upset about that. And they want to go back to the way it was. We started calling it the new Jim Crow back in January when we saw that them trying to deny the electoral vote count was really, you know, a, an opportunity for them to try and disenfranchise black voters in Detroit and Philadelphia and Atlanta. That's really what it was. Um, you know, there's a reason they chose those states. They didn't, you know, they didn't choose California. They didn't choose New York. Here's what I would say is that, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, you know, we started calling on corporate America to deny, you know, further contributions, PAC contributions to the 147 members of Congress who objected to counting those electoral votes. Corporate America is now backsliding on that. The U.S. Chamber is now backsliding on that. Here's the one one thing I really believe about American politics today is that it is a money in, money out system. Corporations give money to politicians so they can get what they want. And Politicians, whether or not they say, oh, well, there's no pay to play, there is. And so taking a company like a Coca-Cola or a Home Depot and saying, you have an obligation to your state and to your country and to the people that buy your products to stand for American values when the time comes. And what are you going to do? And I think that what you'll see is that, as you probably know, Big corporations are, you know, notoriously thin-skinned. They don't want to be attacked. They want it to go away, and so, you know, we're going to stay on them, uh, you know, from here until kingdom come. We got involved in a, a number of lawsuits both during the campaign last year and during the transition period between Trump and Biden, and I think that we will go out of our way to participate in those when we can. So, on this front, you know, there's no greater threat to democracy. Then Republicans attempting to reduce the franchise because they've abandoned the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time. So I have one more question and then two pieces of business. 
the sure. last question is, do you have any questions for me? <laughs> no, I just want to say thank you for, for having me. And I hope we can, we can talk again, both on the air and off. Oh yeah. That'll be great, man. I, I, I have so much respect for the work that you do. You really contributed. I mean, there are inflection points in history. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but man, a lot of times it's by the skin of our teeth that we make it through. It's a game of small numbers, man. Yeah. 45,000 votes going the other way. Donald Trump's still sitting in the White House. Is that what it was? What did you, the 35,000? 45,000. 45,000. Oh gosh. Like it's, it's a scary notion. I don't know what I'd be doing right now. If, if Trump I'd be won. in the woods of Canada, uh, a dissident <laughs> from my own nation. So yeah, yeah. that's only half joking. <laughs> no, I, my, my brother and sister-in-law were looking at Amsterdam. They were looking at, you know, which countries to, uh, to go to, but um, right. I don't think that's overly dramatic. Okay, so there's a nonprofit that you support over in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that you know the the great the great backbone of so much of of America is really not rooted in government, but is rooted in community and folks doing just the best they can for others. I live in Park City, Utah, and there's a there's a organization here called the National Ability Center that helps uh, wounded veterans and those who have pretty significant physical and developmental disabilities to do things they never thought they could do, um, whether or not that's skiing or snowboarding, working a ropes course, uh, working with folks who suffer from PTSD to work with horses and other animals to sort of start to unwind the, the stuff that they're dealing with. Uh, and they're just an amazing group of people. And, and I think that, um, you know, the work they do really has tangible and positive effects on individuals and families' lives. And so, uh, you know, discovernac.org is the way to reach them. Um, they're just a terrific group of people. We're happy to support them. And, and I hope others would take a look at them. National Ability Center, discovernac.org. And lastly, how can we find you, the Lincoln Project, and all the great work you're doing? Sure, uh, you can find me. Um, I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to be. I took it off my phone, which has been the best mental health thing I've ever done. But <laughs> at Reed Galen, uh, R-E-E-D-G-A-L-E-N. Uh, you can find us, uh, find the Lincoln Project on Twitter at Project Lincoln, and you can find us on the web at uh, lincolnproject.us. Awesome. Reed Gallen, this has been an absolute thrill for me. I really appreciate you taking the time. And to your point, I hope it's not the last time. If you're in SoCal or I'm in your neck of the woods, I'd love to buy a beer, hopefully in person. And, uh, get <laughs> I to know. My... I got my first shot on Tuesday, so I'm almost done. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again, man. Be well, and uh, let's make sure to, to do it again. Absolutely. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>